I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from DRX. Today, I've got a great interview with Lady Tron. They're the British electronic pop band. I've also got a bonus with Mike Oldfield in a documentary telling the story of Two Real Bells, which turns 50 today, May 25th. Lady Tron have been creating inventive electronic pop for all this century, but their new album, Time's Arrow, may be their best yet. It was delayed by the pandemic, but don't call it a pandemic album. We actually made a conscious decision to try and insulate the album from the pandemic because we thought no one's going to want to think about this. Yeah, I want people to dance. Like I want like happiness. I want hope. I don't want this inward kind of like sadness. Lady Tron, and after that, the story of Tubular Bells with Mike Oldfield, Brian Eno, and Tom Newman. That's all in a few moments. Summertime is here, so you need to get your Echoes t-shirt going. We've got two for you right now. One is electric blue with the Echoes logo in the pocket position in front, and on the other side, the logo is spread out across your back. We also still have some of our black Echoes 30th anniversary t-shirts left. Let everyone know where the chill resides. Get yourself an Echoes t-shirt at echoes.org. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. Just click on the store tab. And now, here's Ladytron. Ladytron is a British electronic band known for the distinctive blend of synth pop, new wave, and indie electronic sounds. They were formed in Liverpool in 1999, and the band consists of Helen Marnie, Mira Arroyo, and Daniel Hunt. They've released seven albums since their 2001 debut and had their career kind of re-energized a couple of years ago when a TikTok meme used their 2005 song, Seventeen. Now they've arrived out of the pandemic with a new album, Time's Arrow. To a lot of people, Lady Tron's Time's Arrow album might seem like a pandemic release. Quite a few of the songs were like this, that people interpreted them as they just assumed that we'd written them during that period, and almost all of them were before, because we started recording the album literally as all hell was breaking loose. So we did three days in the studio in Glasgow. We were in Mogwai's studio there, and abandoned the session because we didn't know I mean, no one had told us we had to stop, but no one knew what was going to happen. We actually made a conscious decision to try and insulate the material of the album from the pandemic because we thought no one's going to want to think about this. Yeah, absolutely. I want people to dance. Like, I want, like, happiness. I want hope. I don't want this inward kind of, like, sadness.
Daniel Hunt and Helen Marney are two-thirds of the current Lady Tron lineup. The other is singer Mira Arroyo. Co-founding member Ruben Wu left the band early in 2023. I spoke to Daniel and Helen on the Riverside app with Daniel in Sao Paulo, where his wife is from, and Helen in her home in Glasgow, Scotland. Daniel, just happy in his 50s, has shaggy brown hair and a particularly Spanish-looking array of mustache and goatee, while Helen has reverted from short black hair to long and glistening white, framing a face that always seems to have a shy smile. The band got together in 1999, and they took advantage of that brief period where analog synthesizers were out of fashion. So long before the band met, I'd started buying analog synths very, very cheaply. And it was before they were very fetishized. It was more just what was available. Like you'd be in a charity shop and there would be a Korg MS-20 there or something and you could pick it up for 15 pounds. And there wasn't this insane value on everything. I liked it when you could go to like a car boot sale or like get a really ace, awesome keyboard out of the back of someone's car for like 100 pounds. You can hear those sounds on their 2001 debut album, 604. Lady Tron name comes from an obvious source to any fan of British art rock. It's a track from the debut album by Roxy Music. Lady, if you want to find a lover, then you look no further, for I'm going to be your only. It did cause some early confusion about the group, who many just assumed were a girl band. Early on, there was like a little, we got like a press snippet through. Uh, from some, somewhere in the States and described us as four cool chicks with cool jobs or something, <laughs> something like that. Well, two of them were chicks, and one of them, Helen Marney, was classically trained. Yeah, I studied piano from about the age of eight. I've really let it slide. I can barely play two hands together now. I blame Ladytron for that because I don't use two hands that very often. But um, yeah. Um, you play in mono sense. Yeah, that as well, yeah. <laughs> Yes, um, I did. I played classical and that's, yeah, a long, long time ago. Also, do you remember what, I can't remember what song it is, but there's a track on Light and Magic where you played this classical piece you'd written, yeah. but on the Juno 6. Yeah, there's a little it's, interlude. It's like an interlude. Yeah. You can hear a lot of influences from the 1980s on 604, as well as their follow-up in 2002, Light and Magic. Among them are The Normal. That was a short live group led by Mute Records founder Daniel Miller. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. Leatherette. Warm. True mathematics. A lot of people thought that sounded like warm leatherette.
the time. It's funny, I think it was more coincidental than it might have seemed. At that time, we were doing tracks and then someone would send me something going, oh, have, have you heard this? It would sound like something we'd done, but we hadn't necessarily heard. So I'm not even sure I heard um, Warm Leatherette before we did True Mathematics, but it definitely sounds similar ballpark to it. Lady Tron are one of the only electronic pop bands I've ever talked to who did not cite Kraftwerk as an influence in our interview or anything I read in research. So I had to ask. It just seems obvious. They're just part of the sound. Anyone making electronic music is influenced by Kraftwerk in the same way as anyone in the guitar band is influenced by the Beatles in some kind of, you know, five times removed way. So there's no reason to mess in them. But the influence is obvious on their first single, He Took Her to a Movie. He met her in the fall. He took her to a movie. If you strip away the song and the chords and everything else and the rhythm, it doesn't actually sound like Kraftwerk, but it had like a little, a few little riffs that were kind of thrown in playfully, kind of in the spirit of the time. We're talking about 1998 where people were sampling everything and it was just, everything was up for grabs and you could just, there would be little references here and there. So it was more in that spirit. The riffs that were tossed in include the central sequence of Kraftwerk's song, The Model. They have evolved considerably over more than two decades. Their latest album, Time's Arrow, is the most mature and introspective. It's also somewhat ambiguous in meaning on songs like Misery, Remember Me. To me, it sounds like a song of depression. No, I don't think so at all. No, it's really not. I would say it's about moving forward. And when we've described the album as a whole, we have said it's quite hopeful. So... I still see that song as quite hopeful. It's like you're moving forward, but is this thing going to come back at you and bite you? Like, is it going to remember you? That kind of thing. It's like, you you know, you really want the future to be great, but is something going to hold you back? Or is that thing going to remember and, you know, ruin what you're trying to build? It's that kind of thing. But it, it's still hopeful. Yeah, it's definitely not about depression. You know? All three musicians write music and lyrics for the band, but a song by Mira Arroyo, Flight from Encore, sums up some of the themes on Time's Arrow. Daniel Hunt. There's certain themes that run through all the songs, as you say, dealing with memory, and as, as Helen said, an optimism that could be misconstrued 
in a few instances as well. I find it interesting because you don't know an album until it's released. So stepping back, it was interesting for me because I, I, I saw threads within it that, that I hadn't necessarily recognized when we were recording. The ambiguity in their lyrics is even more pronounced in songs like City of Angels and California. You might think that City of Angels was about Los Angeles. City of Angels, not specifically about LA. It's about a few places, just without there, but there's certain references in it that are, but uh, I was thinking about a few different places. I was thinking of um, Paris and some other places that I'd lived. I guess that's a song about memory as well. California isn't actually about California, so. <laughs> we just threw a spanner in the works now, didn't we? <laughs> it's not about California. <laughs> What's it about then? It's like a metaphor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so. Um, War? Um, <laughs> well, it, it's, it's. It's around New York. It's a play, isn't it? It's a play of two halves. So we've got New York and you've got California, so. But we're on lyrics, New York you're fine, but New York couldn't make us happy, caused some consternation. I saw some people complaining because we hadn't announced a live date in New York yet. So people just assumed that we haven't done New York because New York never made us happy. <laughs> that's the lyric. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love New York. I love New York. One of their early lyrics which has gained some resonance is their song 17 from their 20-year-old album Light and Magic. It became a viral TikTok video in 2021 inspiring nearly 133,000 different videos. It was like kids lip-syncing to 17 and dancing and just filming themselves. And talking about their own interpretations and, and, and stuff like that and their, their own experiences and it's kind of... So it was like a whole new audience then, for uh, 17. Mm -hmm. In the era of Me Too, they were drawn to this particular phrase.
Ladytron has stayed with the electronic pop sound for nearly a quarter century now. They sometimes look askance at mainstream artists like Madonna, Sharon Van Etten, and Taylor Swift, who plug into an electronic sound for an album and then go back to what they usually do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, fair play to them. They're, if they're influenced by us, that's great. But also, I mean, it does irk me a little bit when they make a lot of money. <laughs> like, like a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> It's also strange because the things come and go, and um, as you say, people get on the train for one record, and and but it happens so quickly, and I, and I go, oh yeah, so and so was doing something along these lines, and then you look, when was that? And it was already ten years ago. Tron remains true to the course, evolving and maturing with their glistening and atmospheric electronic sound. Their latest album is Time's Arrow on Cooking Vinyl. I will have a link to Lady Tron's Times Arrow in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. Everyone recognizes these notes. It's hard for me to grasp that Mike Oldfield's tubular bells just turned 50 on May 25th. It still feels like the sound of tomorrow. Mike Oldfield is the 11th of 30 icons of Echoes, all for the incredible music he has made over the last 50 years and some 25 albums. And the very first of those was Tubular Bells, released on May 25th, 1973. 50 years later, it still sounds amazing. As we celebrate Tubular Bells, I'm going to go back to a documentary I put together for the 40th anniversary. It's still the same album, so not much has changed in the intervening years. Here's the story of Mike Oldfield and Tubular Bells. In the 1970s, you couldn't escape these familiar notes from Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. It was featured in the movie The Exorcist, became a top ten hit, and was mimicked on TV commercials for everything from tiny time pills to milk. Well, I mean, there was a time where you, you, I couldn't go anywhere without hearing that, you know, they were playing it in supermarkets, and that's how he got the Muzak tag. That's Mike Oldfield. He's a shy and retiring person with whom fame did not sit easily. He lives in the Bahamas now, but in 1987, he was sitting in the breezeway of his mansion in Oxfordshire, England. Rolling his own cigarettes, Oldfield's pale skin, red-encircled eyes, and hesitant, sullen speech give the impression of a hermit lost to the world. He was only 14 years old in 1967 when he formed a group with his older sister, Sally. The band was called Sally Angie, and they released one record, Children with Sun. Children of the Sun. 
Oldfield went on to play with eccentric British rocker Kevin Ayers. This is a song from the bottom of a well. There are things down here I'm going to try to tell. While he was with Kevin Ayers, Oldfield began making his own music. Using a single stereo tape machine, he managed to overdub instruments in his Tottenham flat to create a demo version of Tubular Bells, which sounded like this. Oldfield tried to get the band interested in his new creation. I do remember uh, one of the sessions in Abbey Road. I wanted to play my demos. The engineer, you know, quite dismissively put them on the tape recorder and they all sat around like drumming their fingers as, what's this rubbish? <laughs> but one member of the group, the late classical composer David Bedford, heard something the others didn't. He would play demos and everybody else would say, that sounds awfully boring. And I say, that sounds great. Why don't you listen to a bit of Delius or Vaughan Williams or something? Encouraged by Bedford, Oldfield brought his tape to Tom Newman. He was an engineer working at The Manor, the studios of Virgin Records, even before they actually had any records out. Sitting on his houseboat on the Thames River in 1987, Newman recalled his first meeting with Oldfield. Michael came up to me as I was fiddling behind the mixer and gave me this nasty scruffy little three-inch reel of tape. He was mad as a hatter in those days and said, this is very, very good, you must listen to it, he said, please listen to this. And he thrust this tiny, dirty little tape into my hand. I said, yes, all right, Michael, fine, yeah. And he was kind of constantly almost on the verge of tears because he was under such kind of mental torment at the time. He couldn't handle himself, or at least he couldn't handle his relationship with the planet and the people and all that, you know, he was having a terrible time. Uh, yeah, I did remember you know, this little long-haired, bearded musician I used to be, you know, so unhappy and so confused about everything. <laughs> I felt a bit, uh, you know, sympathetic to my teenage self. <laughs> and I only, only was happy when I was making music because of felt safe in, and lived in a world of music. I think that's what made it so powerful. The sounds were more real, more real to me than you know, real life, real physical life. was the beginning of Tubular Bells. He convinced Richard Branson and Simon Draper to let him record the album as the very first release of Virgin Records. Oldfield aspired to the sweep and depth he loved in classical music, so Tubular Bells contained one composition spanning both sides of an album with no vocals. That was unheard of for a rock record in 1973. But then Oldfield thought of it more as classical music. David Bedford says it was classical music, to a point. Yes, um, but it would have been his perception of classical music at that time, when he was a 16-year-old, which was pretty rudimentary, in that most of Tubular Bells consists of a tune, then another tune, 
then another tune, and then maybe two of the tunes together, but no, none of the concept of development that is inherent in classical style or tradition. So in a sense, it, it is classical music played on rock instruments, but only in a very limited sense. So when it's transferred to full symphony orchestra, it sounds a bit peculiar. Nevertheless, in 1975, Bedford arranged an orchestral version of Tubular Bells. Now with a studio at his disposal, Mike Oldfield set about making Tubular Bells, trying to create the electric symphony in his head as a one-man band. All reports from 1972 indicate that Oldfield was tormented while recording the album. Engineer Tom Newman. It was kind of almost too much for him at times because he, he was very, very nervous. And he'd go into these bouts of hideous depression and kind of uh, inability to communicate. And the only way around him at that time to get him to do anything or to get him to kind of be communicative enough to, to work with was to uh, take him down the pub and get him pissed. So we'd go down the pub and drink Guinness. And then we'd go back and record great mountains of stuff, maybe for 24 hours at a stretch. Yeah, the weird original was, you know, a marathon one week, and all of the first side in one week, you know, because that's the, that's the only time they gave me. And uh, there's over 1,800 individual overdubs in that one week. Tubular Bells was a studio creation. Oldfield played 16 different instruments on it and the studio itself became an instrument with all kinds of effects. When the late Vivian Stanshaw announces double speed guitar on the instrumental roll call crescendo, he doesn't mean Oldfield is playing really fast. Double speed guitar. Make the studio really talk, you know. It wasn't just a question of sitting around playing music and recording it. Used everything from um, certain techniques, doing things at different speeds and backwards, and and actually in real time changing the speed of the tape while we're playing. To a slightly distorted guitars. You know, using acoustics like in bathrooms and around the house, and using echoes. You know, it was so beautifully put together that that tubular bells. You know, every little second been gone into with a microscope. In 2003, when he was talking about his Tubular Bells remake, he pulled out his original Telecaster guitar. Well, I've just um, taken this old Telecaster off the wall because that was the original Tubular Bells guitar, and um, you know, I want to reproduce as many of the sounds as possible. Plucking out notes on his unamplified guitar, Oldfield creates some familiar guitar harmonics. That's it. part two of Tubular Bells. To 
Tubular Bells was influenced as much by Hank Marvin and the Shadows as it was by classical music. But this section, called Harmonics, and the opening notes of Tubular Bells show the impact of more modern classical music, in particular, the American minimalism of Terry Riley's A Rainbow in Curved Air. Yep, well, Terry Riley, Rainbow in Curved Air was a popular album around at that time when he had this ostinato thing going on. Yeah, I used to listen to that. In the way that influenced me with the beginning of Tubular Bells. It's quite a simple trick, you know, you hear it a lot in film scores nowadays. <laughs> Especially on piano, the re repetitious ostinato phrase with the hammering on the thumb. Tubular Bells went on to massive success. It won gold in the U.S. and was on the British charts for 279 weeks. Oldfield also won a Grammy Award for it. It's still often best known as the theme for The Exorcist in 1973. Like Vangelis's Chariots of Fire, Tubular Bells has been both a source of acclaim and criticism, imitation, and parody. In 1993, the ambient group called The Orb remixed Tubular Bells 2, which featured the signature theme. Chris Weston, known as Thrash, didn't want to use any of Oldfield's music at all in the remix. But The Orb's Alex Patterson had more respect for it. Yeah, I mean, Chris really didn't even want to put that on. <laughs> That's the difference in age, you see. You see I'm, I'm 33, Chris is 21. He's looking at things saying, it's like an old cack, it says, do you, do you, do you, do you, know, the riff of Tubular Bell. And I'm thinking, this is semi-sacred sort of thing. It's got to be put on. Brian Eno is known as the ambient pioneer and producer of bands like U2 and Coldplay, but in 1973, he was playing art rock songs with Roxy Music. He says that Tubular Bells shifted the ground between contemporary classical music and pop. Actually, I was very pleased that a record that defied everything that record companies were saying at the time could be a big success. It was long, didn't have a lead singer. <laughs> um, musically, it didn't surprise me. You know, I was, I was drawing from the same tradition that that came from, which was, I suppose, really the Terry Riley world of um, new tonal music. It, it didn't add anything conceptually to that tradition, but what it really did add to was the notion of where that stuff could sit culturally. You know, it wasn't sort of a recherche California minimalist thing any longer. It suddenly was something that loads and loads of people liked. Mike Oldfield has made many beautiful recordings since Tubular Bells, but he continues to revisit his signature work. He's recorded Tubular Bells 2, Tubular Bells 3, and a note-for-note re-recording for Tubular Bells 2003. He's also released a remix disc called Tubular Beats. In 2012, Mike Oldfield played the opening to Tubular Bells live when it was featured in the opening festivities of the Summer Olympics, directed by Danny Boyle.
40 years later, the album has lived up to that accolade that can only be proved with the passage of many years. Tubular Bells is timeless. Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells at 50. I'll, of course, have a link to this recording in the posting for the podcast at echoes.org. I also have a post of 10 essential Mike Oldfield albums with a bonus of all six iterations of Tubular Bells ranked. That's at echoes.org in the commentary section. Once again, that's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. Next week on the Echoes podcast, author and musician John Robb talks about his book, The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth. Get your black eyeliner and black leathers ready. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want. Mm-hmm.